Today on the Bill Kelly Podcast, I'm guest host Shona Thompson. There have been a few heartbreaking stories about those in poverty at risk of homelessness thinking a medically assisted death is their only option. We talk with political scientist Peter Grafe about it and what message this should send to governments and the rest of us. A journalist and former vice chair of the Canadian Radio, Television and Telecommunications Commission is advocating for a change in the CBC business model away from commercials. And a rebrand of Twitter to X, brilliance or blunder? We asked Joanne McNeish, Associate Professor of Marketing at Toronto Metropolitan University. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts right now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A new light has been shown on the issue of homelessness and the impact it has on the mental health of those who are forced to live rough. The chief operating officer of Hamilton's Good Shepherd Centre says its emergency shelter system is now operating at or over capacity every night of the year. And Dr. Catherine Kalinowski says the length of stays for those in need continues to grow. Depending on individual circumstances, some people come into shelter and stay a relatively brief period of time, a matter of weeks. And that was the norm several years ago and for an extended period of time. Today, we are seeing very long shelter stays, a bottleneck in the system as people come into shelter trying to resolve their housing crisis, but simply unable to find housing. And as a result, we have shelter stays that extend into months. She blames inadequate social assistance benefits, precarious work, and the unaffordable housing market. The Family Centre is also seeing an unprecedented demand. She says they're being forced to turn families away up to 80 times a month. There have now been a couple of news items out about some people who have considered a medically assisted death instead of life in poverty a life that is getting even more difficult with the impacts of inflation and renovation. Joining us is McMaster University political, political science professor Peter Grave. Good morning and thank you for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. It's, it's heartbreaking to hear, uh, but it really brings home just how desperate this situation is getting. Yeah, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, we've had a variety of, uh, of soundings on this uh, you know, we had uh, Kim Pate, uh, the senator in Ottawa, uh, who's an advocate in many cases for uh, prisoners, noting how the idea of medical assistance in, in dying has really taken off within prisons as people think it's maybe the only way they can bring all their family together before they pass away. Uh, you know, my own work, uh, speaking with the recipients of the Ontario Disability Support Program and hearing about their lives uh, through the pandemic, you know, many of them you know, began uh, without any prompting, uh, you know, talked about uh, medical assistance in dying, less as something that they would use themselves, but more, uh, you know, the idea that maybe, uh, you know, society as a whole would rather they use that than and pay them enough to live. So we have a situation where there are people living in really difficult situations and, uh, uh, you know, they look at medical assistance in dying as, as somehow related to a way of of uh, solving a situation for which they see no other solution. Well, we've had a couple of stories. I mean, there was one yesterday morning in uh, the Hamilton Spectator, uh, another recent one in St. Catharines, and they're almost identical. Uh, In St. Catharines, it was a man who was living with chronic pain, facing homelessness, who wanted a medically assisted death, but reconsidered after a GoFundMe push helped him out. Um, but we can't do that every time, and the underlying situation for him really hasn't changed. I mean, he does have uh, uh, some funds now that will help him get by for a while, but that isn't going to be, you know, the situation forever. 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it comes back to to the question uh, of whether, you know, people have a, a capacity to sustain themselves and in a situation where they can't, you know, then uh, any kind of, you know, disability or illness begins to, uh, you know, meet the criteria of, uh, of, a, of a situation where, you know, you have an incurable or irreversible disability that causes a state of decline and results in intolerable physical and psychological suffering. And, you know, again, yeah, in many cases, the cause may be economic. And, you know, this has been the, the nature of criticisms Canada has received from the United Nations, uh, you know, and, and uh, observers of, of medical assistance in dying compared to other countries is, is the extent to which ultimately, uh, you know, the Canadian system doesn't really uh, put enough into place to allow people to actually uh, live an, a decent life at the level of income. And so it pushes them into a situation where they see, again, that they're, they're uh, in an incurable situation of decline where there's no real possibility for change. So, yeah, I mean, uh, Canadians maybe need to look in, in, into the mirror and say, you know, for instance, in the case of uh, support for people with disability, uh, is enough being done, you know, in a situation where people in Ontario on disability, you know, receive under $1,300 a month when, you know, the, the studies done even in the city of uh, Hamilton uh, most recently about what the cost of a, a one-bedroom apartment is and a cost of a healthy diet is, you know, already about 20% higher uh, than uh, what one would receive on the Ontario Disability Support uh, Payment Program. We're in conversation with uh, Professor Peter Grafe, who's with the Political Science Department at McMaster University. And, you know, I mean, when you're talking about ODSP being $1,300 a month, the information that we just had, uh, I think, in the last couple of weeks, the latest um, uh, snapshot from rentals.ca about the rental housing market in the Hamilton area, certainly, is that, uh, you know, the average rent now for a one-bedroom apartment in Hamilton is $1,800, almost $1,900 a month. So, you know, $1,300 in your check, you're already behind the eight ball, and you haven't even had anything to eat yet. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a really crucial point. And, you know, across the province, public health units are required to, you know, come up with numbers for the cost of renting a one-bedroom apartment. They come up with something lower, but still, once you add on what it takes to eat, and that's, you know, not talking about any, you know, if you're living with a disability, any kinds of expenses related to managing that, clothing and so forth. I mean, you're, you know, when you go across the, the health units, you know, you're looking at from, you know, 20 to 50% uh, less as the Ontario Disability Support Payment than just uh, rent and food. And so people obviously can't get by. And again, and the, the people I spoke to, you know, they told me how they managed to, you know, put aside a couple of dollars each month so that every three years they could have a winter jacket, uh, you know, or something like that. It's the, the extent to which people living on disability uh, have been really pushed up against the wall in terms of their their ability to even just close themselves, you know, let alone uh, do do any form of, of social participation or activity. You know, the idea of taking a bus is too expensive. If it's, you know, three to six dollars, uh, you know, that really throws the rest of the budget out of whack. So when you're in a situation like that, uh, you can, again, see why the, the low rates of the benefits, uh, you know, push people to be sicker, but also to push them to think that they have no opportunity to change their lives because they don't actually have the resources that would enable them, uh, you know, to do anything uh, in terms of social activity, social interaction, 
you know, let alone uh, thinking about, uh, you know, volunteering or working. Um, it seems like ODSP is one of those um, those political issues that, you know, doing a hike to it may not be, you know, a real vote getter, but it also seems like a hike to ODSP is one of those issues that gets kicked down, you know, the, the roadway a little bit because nobody really wants to deal with it. And then you run into a situation that we have right now with uh, the inflation and the cost of housing being such that a lot of these people are faced with no options. And, and when you throw rent eviction into, uh, into the mix as well, that just makes the situation worse. Yeah, it certainly does. And I mean, you also get to a situation where, you know, in a sense, you might say penny wise, although I don't know how wise this is in pound foolish, uh, you know, and that the very low rates are producing a series of costs, you know, higher rates, uh, you know, in some ways would uh, at least in part pay for themselves in terms of reducing, you know, hospital usage uh, issues that we're seeing in the shelters, uh, uh, some of these challenges uh, around housing. So, uh, yeah, the very low rates do create their their own series of of social bads that are they're costly in their own right uh, to deal with, and so you know certainly raising the rates, uh, you know they 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 could be raised and they would still be lower than they were in the 1990s. They could be raised significantly, uh, but you know there there's also uh, moves at the federal level to do a Canadian disability benefit, and that's gone through the House of Commons. The question is at what level is it going to be funded, and and how will it be negotiated with the the provinces. So, you know, there are there are a few uh, areas where there may be some lights at the end of the tunnel, but uh, presumably, as you point out, these aren't big vote getters. And so, pushing our governments to actually improve uh, the ability of people uh, with disabilities to to make a life uh, is going to be uh, a bit complicated politically. Well, and a light at the end of the tunnel doesn't really help much when you are, you know, looking at next month and, and you could be out uh, on the streets living rough. Yeah, I mean, so I think when we look at the, the medical assistance in dying uh, legislation, which I think many people would consider has been good in terms of giving people uh, greater choices at their end of life. Uh, you know, the other part of it, though, is to say, how do we prevent it from being a form of social murder, where people who are in really tight uh, situations choose it, when in fact, it could be alleviated through uh, better uh, social supports. And so maybe the other piece of it, uh, you know, in, in return for this uh, benefit that many Canadians have is to recognize the importance of improving our, our social assistance systems, so that, you know, it's used in the way that we foresee it being used and not simply as a way that people in, in untenable economic situations choose to get out of them. Yeah, I'm not really sure that uh, when they were creating medical assistance in dying and doing some uh, revisions to the uh, the guidelines for it, that this is what they had envisioned. No, I don't think so. And, you know, so, I mean, you know, what's the answer? Is it to just remove that legislation? Perhaps not, but maybe it's to listen to disability activists who predicted that this might happen and say, okay, well, what safeguards can we put into place, you know, including uh, ensuring that our disability support systems actually support people rather than, you know, keeping them in a situation of really barely being enough to, to maintain housing and, uh, you know, a basic caloric intake. I mean, the people I was speaking to in many cases, you know, were not able to feed themselves properly due to the need to pay rent and not having enough that was left. I mean, is that really what we see as a goal of our disability support system, or do we actually want to enable people uh, to live lives of full participation in our society?
Yeah, it's it's a choice nobody should have to make. And I think your point that we need to take a good long look in the mirror and uh, and maybe do a little bit more to make sure politicians realize that this is a very key and fundamental issue is well made. Peter Grafe is a political science professor at McMaster University. Peter, always good to talk to you and thank you for your time. You're welcome. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There have been increasing threats to journalism in recent years, none the least of which has been sites like Google News or social media companies using news content from sources like Global News without payment. But there has been some long-standing complaints from private broadcasters about the CBC's commercial operations. It gets a public subsidy while also being able to sell commercials. It's the subject of an article by Peter Menzies, who is a national newspaper award-winning journalist, senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute, and past editor-in-chief of the Calgary Herald, also the former vice chair of the CRTC, the governing body of broadcasting. Peter, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for your interest. Good morning to you, Shona. Uh, Well, since its inception, the CBC's commercial operation has been a thorn in the side of private broadcasters, uh, because I'm not sure there's another industry that's faced with at least some of their tax dollars being used to support their largest competitor. No, it's uh, kind of an absurd construct. Broadcasters have complained of it for years. Uh, Radio less so, because radio doesn't compete for advertising dollars. It competes for uh, uh, people's attention and uh, 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 market share and that sort of stuff, but not for advertising dollars. Television broadcasters like Global, CTV have uh, complained about it for years. It was kind of not that big a deal um, when everybody was making money in the news area, but now that uh, it's much more difficult to do that, it's become a big deal. And since the CBC basically got into the business of being an online newspaper, now the uh, newspaper industry is very disappointed, too, to be competing, having to compete with a subsidized competitor. You're suggesting a pretty major change for the CBC. Yeah, I actually, I guess it would be a major change. To me, it's, it's, it just seems like kind of a no-brainer, right? Like, as you were indicating, in, in what other industry would it be appropriate, uh, you know, to have the industrial framework based on the government subsidizing the largest uh, uh, company in the business, right? I mean, if you were an auto dealer and the government was subsidizing a chosen auto dealer, you know, against you, or if you were in the restaurant business, I mean, just pick one. It doesn't make any sense anymore. And, and it, it, you know, it probably made some sense at, at one time when broadcasting was getting going and, you know, like a hundred years ago almost, uh, but, it doesn't make sense anymore. And it's, so it's just easier and it would be better. And I think the CBC would be more trusted. Um, there's a bunch of other changes that could take place that would actually make it more effective and make it of assistance to uh, news organizations such as sharing their content. So you're suggesting cutting off commercial sales. Would that be a, re- a gradual reduction or would they have to go cold turkey? I'd just pick a date and do it. Um, that would be the easiest, the easiest way to go. I mean, you know, different political parties have different views on this. This government, uh, you know, is very much supportive of the CBC. So, you know, after it's $400 million you're talking about, right, which is more money that, than Bill C-18 is going to provide to the entire industry. Uh, and you go through all this fighting with Bill C-18 to try to come up with a couple hundred million bucks to be distributed across an entire industry when there's $400 million worth of advertising revenue 
sitting right there being consumed by the CBC, that the government could simply replace that money, you know, net out the, the savings from not having a sales department, and away you go. And then have the CBC content available to everybody else too. So that way, you know, there'd be a flow-through benefit to all news organizations in the country, uh, online, print, uh, over-the-air broadcast, streaming, whatever. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, um, there it is uh, $1.2 billion that the CBC gets from the government to sustain its operations. To take $400 million uh, away from them, would that not lead, though, to some layoffs and uh, closings of news bureaus? Um, I don't think so, uh, because I, as I suggested, I suggested the government replace it. The CBC's budget is you know, 1.2 billion comes from the government, but about 600 million comes from other sources. Um, 400 million of that is advertising. So 400 million, it is a significant cut, and there definitely would have to be some layoffs because you wouldn't require a sales force anymore. And um, in our the paper I just co-authored with uh, Conrad von Finkenstein, who's former competition commissioner and CRTC chair and federal court judge and all kinds of other sorts of things. It's one of the aspects of having a proper national news industry policy, um, trying to trying to run those things through. But you can't. I mean, there's there's other complications, um, but the, the the dealing with the CBC issue, I think, is fundamental to having a healthy news industry in Canada. And I don't think it would be that 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 complicated. I don't think news bureaus would have to be shut down. I think commercial operations would have to be shut down. Well, there's also some criticism that has undermined the CBC, uh, CBC News and its reputation, by extension, some other news organizations as well, of being bought, bought and paid for by the government because it subsidizes the operations. Yes, um, that's what's going to happen when you get subsidized by the government and you're in the news business, because no matter how pure is the driven snow you you are you you see yourself as being and you know you could be it's uh these sorts of things are all about perception right so you have to work overtime the cbc has always been government subsidized so that's that's not new um but for those who to whom subsidy is new um that's damaging faith in the industry overall and that's not good that's why um, i suggested a flow through benefits rather than direct subsidy makes a lot more, you know, if the government's going to invest in the news industry, it's better to do it via the CBC, where it's always always been doing it, and avoid having to do it directly with uh, private and other commercial operators. Has part of the problem been a succession of cabinet ministers, and really uh, of all political stripes, who didn't really understand the CBC or the business of news? I don't think they understand the business of news at all. I mean, and there's some difficulty under with the, the current government understanding the Internet at all. And, you know, the, the size of the disruption that's occurring, that it, you know, it's a technological disruption that's taking place in the same way as when radio first appeared, it disrupted the newspaper industry. And then, uh, you know, uh, television came along and it, it disrupted the radio business. There went you know, evenings sitting by the radio, listening to, to radio shows, and then, you know, or what's the old song phrase, video killed the radio star. There's always disruption. But this one, um, this one with the World Wide Web is uh, is fundamental, and it's it's uh, changed all the basics for the, the print news industry, which was always the largest part of the industry. 
And I think the government really just doesn't understand that. You, you, you need to find a, a pathway forward, not by subsidizing uh, yesterday. We're speaking with Peter Menzies, who's a senior fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, also a past editor-in-chief of the Calgary Herald and a former vice chair of the CRTC. Now, when you're talking about uh, legislation and governments really not understanding uh, the business of news, they are in charge of legislating it. The latest has been Bill C-18, that's the Online News Act, and you were alluding to it before. Um, do you really feel that Bill C-18 is going to help Canadian journalism survive? I mean, one of the problems, as you just pointed out, is that technology always is way ahead of any ability to legislate it. Yeah, it's interesting. No, I, I don't think, I think Bill C-18 is actually going to hurt. Um, that doesn't mean, you know, that some of the ambitions in Bill C-18 were necessarily incorrect or inappropriate. I think there's there's an imbalance in um, negotiating power at the at the at the uh, negotiation table between news organizations and the big tech companies, but that's a competition issue that needs to be addressed through that. So I accept that. But the basic premise that that uh, online that the big tech companies are stealing their co- people's content and should be paying them for it is is just false, and it's it's misdirected the entire conversation. So. Both Meta and Google, at one point, it might be it's probably too late now, um, would have been willing to pay into a fund that could have supported journalism. Uh, I don't think either of them, they can speak for themselves, um, ever intended, you know, to that journalism would be sort of a drive-by victim of their success. Uh, there was a speech by the Google head of news a couple weeks ago. I read saying they were interested in supporting news because where there's democracy and news is helpful and journalism is helpful to democracy um they actually do better right so it's you know that that sort of stability is good for business um but it won't fix it on itself there's there's many structural issues like the cbc is a huge one um and uh, that need to take place uh then government can assist with uh, in terms of providing the innovation, getting out of the way and inspiring at the same time, inspiring the sort of innovation we need to come up with new ideas to uh, give uh, journalism a fresh horse to ride into the future. Well, one of the things that I had been reading about and hearing about recently is that there is a lot of focus on Canada and what's going on uh, in the battle with uh, with Meta and uh, and Google because it's seen as a potential template for what could happen in other similar countries. Yeah, and and that's that's one of the big problems with Bill C eighteen, in terms of in terms its construction is so bad, in terms of you know trying to put a a cost on a link, right? And links might not even exist six months from now with AI, right? So, but trying to put a cost on a link, the Supreme Court ruled in twenty eleven that links don't have an economic value, right? So the government tried to invent one, in order to to justify this. The end of the day, yes, uh, you know, Minister Pablo Rodriguez kept saying the world is watching, but Canada got it just got too puffed up and it wanted to be this big leader that brought you know big tech to its knees and that sort of and that that whole scenario worked against it because whatever those companies have to give up in Canada, if they give up anything at all at this stage, you have to multiply that times fifty. Because then everybody, every other country from New Zealand to South Africa to India to the Philippines 
to, you know, Slovenia is going to copy the legislation and you'd have to multiply their cost in Canada by at least 50 um, globally. So if it costs them $200 million in in Canada, that's $10 billion worldwide. And even for companies that make their kind of profits, that's real money. It's always real money. And it always comes down to real money, doesn't it? Yep. Absolutely. All the money. <laughs> always. Uh, Mr. Menzies, thank you so much for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for your interest, Shona. You guys have a great day in Hamilton. We will try, and London as well. Peter Menzies is a National Newspaper Award-winning journalist, a senior fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, and the past editor-in-chief of the Calgary Herald, as well as being the former vice chair of the CRTC. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It was rumored that Elon Musk was going to change the logo and branding for Twitter from the bird to an X. And that happened first thing yesterday morning. Was it marketing brilliance or a blunder? As we hear in this report, the initial feedback anyway was not that good. Elon Musk has ditched the blue bird. The new logo for Twitter is the letter X. Carrington Wiggum has been a Twitter user since 2010. I myself am going to hop onto Twitter. You know, it's going to take a time to be like, I'm hopping on X. Elon Musk has long been fascinated with the letter X. He says when the rebranding is done, tweets will be called X's. Carrington Wiggum is not impressed with some of these changes. All the things that are happening, I, I might just need to you know, slow down on Twitter and just watch it unfold into whatever it is supposed to be to deem it good or bad for me. Insider intelligence analyst Jasmine Enberg says Twitter's rebrand is a reminder. Elon Musk, not Threads or any other app, is and always has been the most likely Twitter killer. I'm Ed Donahue. Uh, joining us now is Joanne McNeese. She's the Associate Professor of Marketing with Toronto Metropolitan University. Good morning and thanks for your time. Uh, appreciate being here, Shona. So changing a brand that has its own linguistics kind of seems like a risk. In fact, it's always a risk. So the common reason for changing a brand name is underperformance. And all many commentators will have spoken to the lack of revenue uh, that Twitter had. And uh, Elon Musk, though, has made that worse, typically in a rebrand you don't make a revenue issue worse. So he's lost a lot of advertising dollars in this process. Um, So what's he doing? Well, he's certainly attracting a lot of attention. And as the previous report said, he's fascinated by the letter X. But Shona, what comes to your mind when you think of the letter X or a cross out? A mistake or, you know... Mm you know, eliminating a mistake. I was thinking, like, does the lexicon now become, uh, you know, I just X this out? That means that you've eliminated it. Ah, see, that's what's fascinating. This is so open to interpretation and mostly in the wrong way. I what, The first thing that came to my mind is a uh, bank machine or a retail point of sale machine where when I want to cancel the transaction or I've made a mistake, I use the red X on the machine. So we think of the negative uh, when we do this. So I personally think it's a big mistake. Now, those who are big fans of Elon Musk say, no, no, he's far more brilliant than us ordinary mortals. And so he has something clever planned for us. 
but none of this fits contemporary rules of branding or rebranding and nothing he's done so far has been good for the company. Well, you know, you cannot put anything past Elon Musk. And I thought this might be just a way of drawing attention back to his microblogging platform and away from threads. See, see, that's yes. See, that was my sort of first reaction in the announcement stage. In other words, before he did anything, I thought, oh, that's a really interesting way of attracting our attention. Surely he wouldn't throw away uh, the name Twitter and the bird and the color which have, people have spent years building up and is well known and it's part of our vocabulary. I'm going to tweet. And exactly as uh, one of the commentators says, that's the action that we do in order to do this. What, and, and, and while he says he announced it's going to be called Xing, again, Xing is cancellation. Is it that he really just want, he bought the company in order to uh, destroy it? The other thing that I find fascinating, this is a marketplace which is a mature marketplace. So it has a lot of very strong competitors and that makes it much more difficult to rebrand. To rebrand negatively in a competitive marketplace is to hand yourself, your hand the competitors, Facebook, um, TikTok, the weapons in which to destroy you. So. It, to me, again, I think we do not underestimate him. He's very much like Donald Trump to me. You never underestimate someone who does not care. Uh, but uh, this, he may be in a marketplace that's quite different than the, the X bank he started, the Model X of Tesla and SpaceX, because he loves X and he's used it. But typically he's entering markets which have no structure and very few competitors or almost no competitors. That is not the space of social media today. Well, you know, the other thing is I was on the site uh, earlier today and I was looking at the actual platform itself. And what really has changed here? Because the platform works the same way. It looks the same as it always has. In fact, the search button says search Twitter. The tweet button is still there. So what really has he changed here? So it's a it's a corporate name change, which he says will uh, be filtered through uh, the tool over the coming weeks and months. And he also did uh, quicker work on the desktop platform. He said it will filter through to the mobile platform again fairly quickly. Although that's an interesting strategy too. Normally when you rebrand, all the platforms are changed overnight. So I've been involved in one and talked to colleagues who've been on them. And the night before the rebrand, everything moves together. In other words, all the teams are there. Everybody's working together to make everything transform overnight, as well as scrubbing the internet of the previous brand and brand properties. Um, everything is gone. It, it literally is a transformation. Again, he is not doing something in a normal way. He's he's done it, and he's done it on the um, desktop or laptop desktop laptop platforms versus mobile. And Twitter, I think, is more strongly a mobile platform in its usage. Um, so it's it's a very unusual way of doing it. So that makes me suspicious to say, what's this all about? So people would say he's just trying to kill Twitter. I think that's plausible. I think he's drawing a lot of attention, also plausible. And 
he does not believe in the rules of marketing, the rules of doing business as usual. That's not worked very well for him. He's had problems in Tesla. In other words, you can't run a production factory in an ad hoc fashion. So that's why the quality of Tesla is not great. His SpaceX program is a bit in pieces, literally. Uh, his bank became PayPal. He had to rename it in order for it to become something successful. So X has never been successful for him. But again, he doesn't care being successful. He's He would claim he, he's trying to transform things. And X, interestingly, in another meeting, is a transformative symbol. Um, he's not religious, but it also was used... Um, uh, in early Christianity as a symbol for Christ. Uh, again, he, he's, he has said in interviews, he's not, he doesn't believe in anything except in the here and now. Um, I also think he, well, that's him personally. In terms of this rebrand, I don't see anything that is successful so far. Uh, and by the way, most of his businesses are not successful. Please don't hate on me. I understand he sells a few Teslas. He's made a few spaceships. Um, but nothing has been successful because of the X. So to me, this is not yet a successful rebrand. And I don't think that's his intention. We're speaking with Joanne McNeish, who's Associate Professor of Marketing at Toronto Metropolitan University, and we're talking about the rebranding of uh, of Twitter to X. Now, Joanne, I've been involved in format changes at radio stations, and, mm. you know, I agree with you. When, when that happens, it is a wholesale change. You've changed the music. You've changed some of the personalities, if not all of them. You've changed all of the logos. You know, there's a reason they call it a brand, because it burns out the old and brings in the new. Oh, it's a beautiful analogy. The successful ones, it's exactly right. You, it's everything's gone, and and it, it, it's and then if if you too have been involved in these, it's a huge effort. It's months, years of preparation for a moment in time that you make the transformation. Because in order for it to stick, for it to be in time, because look what's happening. I don't know if you noticed in our conversation, we keep falling into Twitter and talking about Twitter. Uh, because that's what we know it as. And so you have to keep working hard at it. But but again, what's going to be different about this platform? You and I have both said right now, nothing, nothing seems to be any different. And to do it with uh, now, again, could that be his strategy, which is, oh, I'll keep them talking about it. Look at those people all talking about this. But we're not talking about it in a positive way. I've been following the media on this because I find these topics fascinating. There's been no, nobody, except for the fact they're saying, well, maybe he has something else planned. Very, no one yet so far has said anything about this that looks successful. No one's saying, well, that's a lesson for us to learn, except to say, as we've both said, you have to do it all. And there has to be also an underlying reason for it. Again, underperformance is one reason. Um, when you acquire something, as he did, that's another reason. But it's about making the brand image better. It's not making the brand image worse. In other words, you are wanting to have X be the successful brand by eliminating Twitter. There was no problem with uh, Twitter brand image functionality and for example the way people have used it those were issues 
but that's like the features of the brand. We could have improved those. There's tools we could have done. And over its years, Twitter has tried to do some improvements. The ability to block people, the ability to um, allow certain people into your network or not. And sadly, and, and to turn off the comments, because those were the things that made Twitter so uh, um, so awful in our social fabric. And But that's a criticism of all social media. Social media has not improved our what was promised, our social discourse, our political discourse. So I agree with you. This is there's nothing about this that I can find positive unless it pushes forward our discussion about social media networks and could we do it better or differently? Can we get some improvements? And by the way, my my uh, TikTok is always good fun. They've got lots going on over there about their reaction to X and about a new feature that they've added allowing. It's not quite a text feature, but they're having some fun with this idea of X on on TikTok in terms of functionality. So that's the other thing. Your competitors now have a way to use it to their advantage. Well, and all of that is serious for a brand. Well, Elon is just going to take that as a badge of honor, I'm quite sure. Joanne McNeish <laughs> is an associate professor of marketing with Toronto Metropolitan University. We have been talking about the switch of Twitter to X and whether or not it's, you know, going to take hold. Well, I guess time will tell. You're with The Bill yeah. Kelly Show on 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. Joanne, thank you for your time. Thank you, Shona. Talk to you soon. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.